we never lied to people we negotiated with. People would say to us, hey, I'll come out, I'll put the gun down, I'll let the hostage go, whatever it is, but you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say to them, well, when you come out, you are going to go to jail. And then we would try to deflect the conversation to something that was more positive for them. You know, we couldn't lie and, and use that to our advantage, but we did it because there was a good chance that a year from now or two years from now or five years from now, we would be right back here negotiating with that same person again. And if they felt that you lied to them before, then you were going to have to bring another negotiator in because you had no credibility. I am today accompanied by Terry Tucker. Hello, Terry. How are you? I'm great, Alex. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking with you. We're going to discuss a bit about mental health, a lot of different topics, probably. He's got a really interesting book. I've gone through it and we will be discussing about a few topics in which I might not agree 100% with him. And there's another few topics in which I actually agree quite a bit with you. So tell us, Terry, who are you? What's your background? You know, I'm a lot older than you are, so I've had a whole lot more life experience. I was a college basketball player here in the United States. I grew up with two brothers. We were all athletes. So, you know, my parents were always doing that divide and conquering thing. Professionally, I've had quite a few jobs. I started out in the business world, in marketing, became a hospital administrator, then made a major pivot in my life and became a police officer. And part of what I did when I was in law enforcement was I was an undercover narcotics investigator. I was also a SWAT team hostage negotiator. Uh, I started my own school security consulting business. Uh, I coached girls high school basketball when we lived in Texas. Wrote a book in 2020, started a blog in 2019. But for the last 10 years or so, I've been dealing with a very rare form of cancer, a rare form of melanoma that appeared on the bottom of my foot that has caused me to have my foot amputated eventually. And in 2020, I had my leg amputated and I still have tumors in my lungs, which I'm being treated for now. And then I guess sort of to round it out, my wife and I have been married for 28 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer uh, in the military here in the United States. Your background is remarkable, I must say. Yeah, I've done a lot of things. I, I sort of joke that one of these days I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up, you know? So. <laughs> Let's start with, I can throw at you a fact or something I didn't agree with in your book. And then we start rolling from that naturally, in a natural conversation. I didn't want this to be a script thing. Okay. So <laughs> I think it was the first chapter. You posited a quote that it is, always do what you are afraid to do but how many of us do not do that? Okay, so here, are you implying that our instinct is perfectly inversely correlated with what truth is? Because if it is inversely correlated with what truth is, it would signal or it would make you act the opposite from afraid when the situation should be enforced or affronted with being afraid. For example, you find a tiger and you are excited about interacting with him and you want to kiss him. That's not what your gut should tell you. So if you're afraid of it and you should do the thing that you're afraid to, I think that's not a correct statement in all the cases. In many of them, I agree with you. There's many things in which 
if you are able to reason that, that there's a thing that you should be doing, for example, approaching a cute girl or asking for a raise in your job, there's many things in which this could apply to. And I've just mentioned two examples, but it doesn't apply to everything. Would you agree with me that there's some nuance? I think there's nuance in life. I think we like to live in the black and the white. You know, we like to absolutely know or absolutely not know that something is going to be that way. But 99% of life occurs in the gray, you know, where I think overall, I believe in that statement that I did. Are there exceptions to it? Absolutely. I think there are exceptions to a lot of things in life that we think are absolutes. So I don't disagree with you in that regard. But I honestly believe that, you know, we like living in the comfortable, you know, to the mind, the status quo, the way things are right now is good, it's comfortable, and we like it and don't mess with it. But the only way we're going to grow, the only way we're going to get better, the only way we're going to improve is if we step outside those comfort zones and do things that make us uncomfortable. Sure, we can live in that hey, you know what? Things are great right now. And a lot of people do. A lot of people live in that. You know what? I like it here. I'm comfortable. I don't want to stretch. I don't want to grow. I like it where I am. And that's fine if that's what you want. But if you want to be great, if you want to excel, if you want to you know, find your purpose, your passion, your why in life, you're going to have to do some things that are uncomfortable, especially if you want to be successful in those things. Because I always believe that the road to success is paved with failure. And with failure comes, oh man, you know, I messed that up. I feel bad. Somebody got hurt, whatever you want to say. So I think you're going to have to do some things that scare you with the understanding that I don't know how this is going to turn out, but we'll see how it goes. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Your point of view is quite reasonable. I had the opportunity to see when we had our first chat. Right. I like your point of view in general and towards life, especially with you're a cancer warrior, as you like to call it. That's a remarkable thing. I haven't had uh, people really close to me suffering from cancer, fortunately, but they had a second level in family closeness. I don't know how you call it, but I, I've had people not directly from my family, but people related to my family mm -hmm. that had suffered cancer and had died to cancer. And uh, yeah, it's hard and it's something that I don't have a good criteria to approach it. But the only thing I can say is that it is a super hard thing. It is in a lot of ways. And it it's hard because we make it hard because we sort of equate the word cancer with death. You know, it's like having a death sentence. And in many cases, it, it is. But in a lot of cases, it's not. You know, I, I mean, I look back, my father died of cancer shortly after I graduated from college. And I look where cancer treatment was almost 40 years ago, and where cancer treatment is today. I mean, he took chemotherapy, he lost his hair. I mean, he was all blotchy skin-wise and stuff like that. I took chemotherapy, I didn't lose my hair. You know, I was expecting to lose my hair. My doctor told me I would lose my hair, but when I didn't, he's like, yeah, some people don't lose their hair. We have all these preconceived ideas in our mind about how bad cancer is. You know, it's like anything else. The more we think about them, the greater they get, the more scary they become. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, this is the worst thing in the world. And then if you sort of step back and step out of it, well, maybe it's not. I mean, it's not good. It's not fun. Don't get me wrong. But our bodies can handle so much more than we ever give them credit for. And I, I just think it's something that 
Yeah, it, it's not fun. I have, you know, like I said, I've lost my foot. I've lost my leg. I've got tumors in my lungs, but I'm still sitting here 10 years later talking to you, you know, and have a relatively good life because, you know, I'm my own cheerleader. I'm my own coach. I'm part of my team, my family, my doctors, my nurses, and all that kind of stuff. You can't do it alone. Just like so many other things in life, you can't face a disease like cancer by yourself because it tends to isolate you as it is. There's a big component there of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more yeah. you believe that you can affront it, you actually will be able to affront it better. Absolutely. But there's also maybe some selection effect in that in respect to the fact that you are now in front of me being able to talk to me may only mean that you were lucky in surviving it, not that your theory was correct. But I would agree with you. If there's no way to prove if your theory scientifically, because you're only one person, we cannot test this a thousand times with a thousand Terry Tuckers, you know? Right. So if we cannot do that, and it seems like the self-fulfilling prophecy theory applies to a lot of things in life, and it seems to apply to cancer, I would guess that the most reasonable thing to do is believing that you can do it more often than not will increase your odds of being able to do it. I think so. I really do. And so much of that is mindset. Now, you know what? We all have an expiration date. We all have a time when we're going to die, and we don't know when that is. And we also really don't have a lot of control over that. Now, we can certainly do things, you know, eat right. You know, you were talking about what you did over the weekend, you know, exercise, get plenty of rest, you know, not abuse our bodies. We're still going to die. I mean, I don't care how, how much exercise you do. I don't care how great you eat. We're still going to die. But, you know, it's what quality of life do you have? And, you know, people that, you know, drink to excess, that are on drugs, that smoke, that do all the things we know are bad. And then are like, oh, my gosh, I got cancer. Duh. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, you didn't do anything to help yourself. But the bottom line is we're all going to die. The, the key here, I think, is everybody dies. Not everybody really lives. And I, I heard a, a Native American Blackfoot proverb here in the United States years ago that I love. And I'll share it with you. And it goes like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for at the end of my life. Oh, wow. That's, that's the, that hit me super hard. Everyone dies, but not everyone lives. Depends on how you define life and how you define, well, right. not death, whatever you define death as. You could certainly agree with me that everyone dies, but depends on how you define life. Some people, or not everyone, might do the thing that, like self-achievement in developing yourself as a person to a certain level that you consider your life to have been worth living. Yeah. You know, I mean, we all exist, but do we really live? Do we really embrace life? Do we, you know, drink deeply from the cup of life? And a lot of people don't. And I don't have any control over those people, you know, and people get all excited about, you know, I, oh, this is going to happen or that's going to happen. I, when I coached basketball, I used to tell my players, the only two things that you have any kind of control over in your life is your attitude and your effort. Everything else pretty much is outside your control, which goes back to what we were talking about before. We like to live in the black and the white, you know, that's great. But so much of life is in the gray because we don't have control over it. I don't have control over my boss doesn't like me. I'm not going to get the promotion. Oh, okay. I don't have any control over that. But can I do the best job every day when I come to work? Sure, I can. That doesn't mean I'm going to get anything out of it. This is 
highly related with the serenity prayer. Do you know it? Yes. I will read it to the audience if you don't know it. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I wish this could be applied in a bigger proportion to my life. <laughs> hey, that's up to you. I mean, you can apply that. You know, if you want to do it, do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. And that's taking responsibility for our own lives and not handing it off to somebody else. And I think I might have said this to you when we had our pre-call that I want my life to be based on the decisions that I made, not the ones that I didn't make or the ones that other people made for me. And I realized a lot of that's out of my control. You know, other people are going to make decisions that are going to impact my life that I have no control over. But as much as I can, I want to be responsible for my life, the life that I live and be able to say, hey, you know what? At the end of my life, I did the best I could, made a lot of mistakes along the way, hurt some people because of those mistakes. But bottom line, I was responsible for the things that occurred in my life, not somebody else. And think about that. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that are like, you know what? I'm going to just hand my life off to somebody, especially with cancer. You know, it's like, okay, I got cancer. Well, I'm handing my whole life over to make the decisions for me. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I have no medical background, but I want to be involved in those decisions. I want to be the one to say, yeah, that makes sense. I think I'm going to do that. Or no, I don't want to take chemotherapy because it's going to make me really sick and not save my life. Whereas I'll take whatever time I have left being as healthy as I can and be able to live a better quality of life. I will have a guest in one of the few next episodes called Robert Johan. He wrote a book called Butchered by Healthcare. And the, the basic point is that there's a huge conflict of interest between physicians, healthcare providers, how the system of healthcare is built in the US, how the drug and medicine administration, FDA, food and drug. The FDA yeah. and, and the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a huge conflict of interest there. So there must be some criteria from the part of, the, of you, of the person who's receiving the service. You must develop some capacity to judge, unfortunately. Yeah, you do. But I mean, you think about that, that's true in a lot of ways in our life, that there are agencies, there are people, there are, you know, there are things out there that, yeah, I don't know a lot about, but I need to at least educate myself somewhat about those so that I can say, yeah, oh yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. Or no, I don't understand that. And I think one of the things that I try to do, and I almost I'm not going to say force, but I like my doctor to do is explain to me what you're going to do to me, how that's going to affect me. And don't explain it to me, you know, on a chemistry level or a science level. Explain it to me like I, I am the dumbest person in the world. Make me understand what's going to happen because I want to know that. It's like, oh, oh okay, that makes sense. I think we should do that. Or Mm, yeah, I don't think I want to do that based on, you know, understanding what's going on. And so many people don't do that. They're like, you know, here, doctor, you take over my life now and whatever you say, I'm going to do. I don't want to know how it works. I don't want to know how it's going to affect me. And, and I'm just not one of those people, but there are quite a few people out there that do that. Yeah, you're, you're right. But it requires the guts and the maybe in many scenes of life, getting to the point in which you know enough to have a good gut feeling is too much. And I don't know if this could be applied to everything, but going back to our previous point, most of the things are generally not black or white. They are mostly gray. So yeah. I don't have a criteria to say you should do this or this. It's 
right. mostly improvising. Yeah, you make the best decision based on the information you have. As long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. I think this was from your third chapter, if I don't remember wrongly. Okay, so if this was true, the perfect solution to not being defeated could be to never admit your previous bad investment. This cannot be a healthy way of approaching a stressful situation in life. We must be capable of admitting or determining which project should be quitted or when a project should be continued in a sense to keep investing in it. Because if you did not have this criteria to determine when you shouldn't stop investing in something, let's say I buy Tesla stocks expecting Tesla to go up and it goes down. Well, if I continue thinking that Tesla stocks should be valued higher than I are actually now and previous to my investing in it or in the moment that I invested, it would be rational to invest even more. But there's a moment in which you have to take into account how solvent you are. Maybe you are almost losing everything you, you've got, so you have to pay the bills in the moment. So that's the point in which you should admit your error and say, okay, I will sell these shares from Tesla that, that I have because I cannot afford to keep buying. I keep buying and not admitting my error because I have to pay for the rent this month. And that's true to a point. But again, where is your responsibility to understand Think about it. You know, the wealthiest people, the most prominent people, they probably have access to more data than you do. So they're able to make better decisions because they have more data. Now, if you had more data, you might be able to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm getting out at this point, or no, no, I'm doubling down and I'm putting even more money into this company and that. So, I mean, part of it is personal responsibility. I mean, where is it in your life? you know, where you're like, oh, you know, oh man, I messed that up. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's right. I mean, I, I'm not sure the, the best example is, is investing because, you know, I, I mean, if you did it full time and you did it 24 hours a day and all you did was manage your portfolio, you'd probably be a whole lot better off financially than if you had to go to work for eight hours and you had a family and then, hey, maybe I got an hour or two at night where I can actually sit down and read research and, and look at data and make a decision on whether I want to stay in that stock or whether you know I want to get out. So, I, I mean, it really depends on what your abilities are, what kind of information you have and stuff like that. And again, this is more, more kind of in the mindset as it is you know, a real life, let's, you know, here's a stock or, or here's a bond or something like that. You know, so many people give up. And I don't know how it is in Spain where you are, but here in the United States, a lot of times we start down the road towards a goal. And then we butt up against an impediment. Something comes in our path and we're like, oh, I quit. I give up. We're great at, we don't just give up. We got to blame somebody. Somebody's got to be responsible for why I failed. My mom and dad, my boss, my station in life, my lack of education, whatever it is. But very few people in life take personal responsibility for their own success and happiness. And what I'm saying with that quote is basically, as long as you don't quit, as long as you take responsibility for that, you can say, well, that's a terrible quote because you're going to quit someday because you're going to die and it's going to be over. But what I'm saying is, Keep going because you can handle so much more, especially physically, than most people can. And I don't remember if I told you this story when we talked earlier, but there was a professor at Johns Hopkins University here in the United States 
who did a very simple experiment back in the 1950s. He took rats and he put rats in a tank of water that were over their head. And he wanted to see how long rats would tread water. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as they were getting ready to sink and drown, he reached in, grabbed the rats, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he put those exact same rats in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, those rats treaded water for 60 hours. Think about that. First time, 15 minutes. I can't do any more. I'm going to drown. I'm going to die. It's not like, oh, I I didn't make it. I'm going to die. Second time around, 60 hours, which said to me two things, the importance of hope in our life. Number one, got to have hope. Got to believe that whatever we're doing here is going to lead us someday, You know, maybe not next month, maybe not next year, but someday to something that's better in our lives. And number two, just how much more the physical body can handle than we ever give it credit for. So I looked at that quote more as kind of a mindset, as just don't quit because you can handle so much more than you ever thought you could. We quit, we give up long before we ever should. I see a mixture between two philosophies, the extreme ownership of Jocko Willink and stoicism. You have to be able to calibrate what your situation is and how your mindset has to be able to deal with, no matter how much suffering you're going through. Partially, you can reduce it through mental toughness and partially you just have to deal with it because no amount of suffering is not worthy of being lived. You're right. And, you know, I say that, but I guess there's sort of the flip side of that. Everybody has a breaking point. I don't care how tough you are, how strong you are. Eventually, you get to the point where you just can't handle whatever it is anymore. But I guess what I feel about that is that that point of having to, I just can't do it anymore, is so much further down the road than we ever give it credit for. I mean, we're ready to quit much earlier than we ever need to quit because our bodies, our minds can handle a whole lot more. It's just people like, oh, this is hard. This is difficult. Uh, I'm tired. Yeah, I get it. I'm tired too. I'm tired. I don't have a leg. I hurt all the time. You know, I'm being pumped with drugs to keep these tumors in check. Yeah, I get it. But you know what? I'm not done yet. I can do so much more, but so many people quit long before they ever need to. If you are saying this, maybe everyone should be recalibrating the amount of strain that that they are willing to withstand. I agree. I, I think they should, because I really think that we give up. I guess it doesn't have to be regarding an illness. You know, it could be with a job. It could be with, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're starting a new company and, oh, things aren't going well. And you're right. Just like you talked about the investment side, there's a point in time when you got to be like, I got to cut bait. You know, I got to be done with this. Or can you keep going? Should you keep going? Like I said, it goes back to, I think, our initial discussion, black or white. Should I stay in this in this company or should I quit and give up? Well, unfortunately, that decision's in here, in the gray, in that part of I don't know. You you got to decide that. And sometimes you're wrong. And that's okay. It's okay to be wrong. I think Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa, had that great quote of, I never lose. I either win or I learn. And as long as you're either winning or learning, you're continuing to grow. And as long as you continue to do that, even if you lose, so to speak, on the scoreboard, that doesn't make you a loser. You only become a loser when you start blaming somebody else for you know the situation you got yourself into. You cannot defeat a growth-minded person. You can only 
teach them new points. Let's say you and I debate. I think you are a person who's quite focused in the growth mindset perspective. If I try to point out to a failure in your reasoning, I will not be able to destroy you personally. I will only be able to improve your reasoning in the future. You know yeah. what I mean? And the same thing yeah. would apply to me if I was at the same level of growth mindedness that I try to do with the podcast. That's why the ethos is a strong opinions weekly held. Yeah, we all have opinions. And those opinions are, I mean, they start off when we're young, you know, with our caregivers. What, what do we see our caregivers doing? How do we see our caregivers treating other people? What morals, what values do they teach us? And then our life either reinforces those values or chooses or makes us find other values. So like, oh, no, that's not right. That, you know, I mean, I don't agree with that. I want to do something else. So absolutely. And, and that's the great thing about being humans. We're adaptable. You know, we can change. We can make, you can say something to me that I'm like, oh, I've never thought about that before. You know, maybe my opinion is going to change based on what you told me. But we get so hung up on the fact that these are my opinions. These are my values. These are my goals. And they're right. And everybody else is wrong. Well, you know, if you have that opinion, you're going to be very close-minded and very short-sighted. You know, you're an incredibly intelligent young man. And I'm like, I can learn a lot from you. So why would I not want to do that? Why would I not want to improve myself based on talking to you or to somebody else? I can learn something from everybody. That's true. That's true. There's a podcast called Rationally Speaking, and it's co-hosted by Julia Galef. And she wrote a book called The Scout Mindset, Why Some People see things clearly and others don't. And the basic point is that there's the scout mindset and the soldier mindset. The soldier cannot afford changing the lane. His objective is to defeat the other person. But if you are a scout in the way that we're trying to do in this conversation, in that we are seeking for truth, not for the humiliation of the other person, I want you to prosper and to be better. I don't want you to be humiliated. I just want to find truth. And if the finding of truth requires me to point out to a failure I think I found in you, I will do it. And the same thing the other way. Yeah. And that's the problem. I mean, it's certainly the problem here in the United States where ideology-wise, if I don't agree with you politically, then you're bad. You know, And it's like, wait a minute, why did you become bad just because we don't agree on a certain point. Why are you bad? But that's what we've come to here in the US, where if you don't agree with me on some issue, then you're a bad person. I don't know where that happened. I don't know how that came about, but that's why we're screaming at each other all the time. And I think you and I talked about this earlier, the importance of listening to understand versus the importance of listening to respond. You know, listening to respond is, all right, Alex, hurry up and say what you're going to say because I want to put my two cents into this conversation versus, oh, okay, Alex, I, I hear what you're saying. I may agree with you. I may not agree with you, but help me understand why you feel that way. And now we're creating a dialogue. And through a dialogue, we can create a connection. And then all of a sudden, I see you as a human being, not as somebody who's bad because you don't agree with me. It requires a proactive response that can only be given when you don't consider the other person to be an enemy and you consider right. the other person to be a mostly rational person who might only be misguided in the same way that you are. And I would say that the origin of why society gets polarized is due to a tragedy of the commons on how the economy works. Politicians get benefited by polarizing society because as the stakes are higher and as more things are dependent on the political process, the people managing the economy in, the, in politics 
are better off. They want things to be polarized, but you and I, normal people, don't want society to be polarized. We want more peace and harmony to exist. That's similar to the warmongers, people who want to invade Afghanistan. Not only Afghanistan, but most of the wars in the Middle East were incentivized by people who wanted the wars actively because they were going to be personally benefited. I'm not making the claim that those wars weren't justified. Some of them weren't, some of them might be, but I don't have a criteria to judge if they were or not. I'm just saying that there's people who wanted not because of the justification of in geopolitical terms, but in personal benefit terms. And that's bad. Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's where I think politics has kind of gone off the rails. I mean, we all can't be politicians. I mean, I guess we could, you know, to a port, you know, there was a, a Roman by the name of Cincinnatus who, you know, kind of was like, look, I'm a farmer. I'm going to go represent my area in, in Rome be a politician for four years, and then go back to being a farmer. And I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, but I don't think our founding fathers here in the United States ever expected politician to be a career choice, to be an occupation that you did for 40 years. I think, you know, you do something else, you become a politician, you help with new views, new ideas, and then you go back to doing what you were doing and somebody else comes in with other ideas and fresh ideas and I think that's where it's gone off the rails, because I don't want my politician to think that his or her job is to stay in power. I want my politician to do things that will benefit the people in the United States instead of just trying to stay in power. And that's where I think we've gone off the rails. I think most Americans would tell you that our politicians don't care about us. They just care about staying in power. Hmm. Interesting. From the things I've read... It works much better in Switzerland. I think that there's an index that correlates the average income and the income that politicians receive, and that number is much lower in Switzerland than in the US. Oh, yeah. It's a great deal if you're a senator or a congressman, you know, on the federal level. You know, you're a congressman for a term, you get lifetime health care. Really? I mean, health care is a huge expense to a lot of people in this country, and you get free health care because you spent four years making laws, you can invest in whoever you want to invest. I mean, you're sitting on a committee and you know that the government is going to buy a certain amount of brand new airplanes from a company. Well, nobody else knows that, but you can invest in that company before they do that and make all kinds of money. And that's not illegal. That's insider trading for anybody else. But for a politician, it's okay. Those are the kind of things that you're staying in power. You're gaining wealth. You're doing what's in your best interest, not necessarily what's in the people's best interest. I couldn't agree more. You said a really interesting quote in your book that it's never be the smartest person in the room and surround yourself with people who will argue with you. With the second part, I completely agree. And with the first part as an aspirational objective, I also agree. But it, I would argue against the sustainability of that. Everyone cannot be in a room in which they are not the smartest person. Someone should be the smartest person everywhere. So that person is not fulfilling your theory. But in the part of surround yourself with people who are, will argue with you, 100%. I think that free speech and the capacity to complain about anything should be the thing that's predominant in society. Even if, let's say, 
there's something really assumed by you and I. Slavery. Slavery is bad, but that should be questioned. Why is that something that we assume so openly? And I can question that and I can say, okay, but let's see if there's some benefits to slavery. Not because I have any prejudice against the freedom of people who are not slaves now and they used to be slaves previously like black Americans, but because I want to just reconsider it. And I would be brutally debated by people saying, no, slavery is bad because all these arguments that posit that everyone were made equal on the eyes of God, as in the US constitution, and I would be rebutted and that's fine. But that debate should be had. And if that debate is not had, I just try to posit the most extreme example possible, that the slavery is possible, the thing that's most assumed as a thing in society. And I'm 100% against slavery, but even that should be questioned. Yeah, I mostly agree with you. I'm reading a book now about Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, who really kind of came to power right before the whole South seceded from the United States and, and all that. And I'm trying to remember what the book's called. It just went right out of my mind. But basically, it's about his cabinet, the, the men at the time it was all men that he put in his cabinet. You know, usually the way it is now, if you're a Democrat and you're in power, everybody who's on your cabinet is a Democrat. Same thing if you're a Republican. Everybody who's in your cabinet, if you're the president, is a Republican. And so what Lincoln did was, I'm not looking for the best people in my party. I'm looking for the best people. I'm looking for those people who, you know, maybe Democrat, maybe Republican, maybe somewhere in the middle that I want on my cabinet because I want those people to argue with me. You know, and some of the people that he put on his cabinet initially were like, yeah, Lincoln's not very sharp. You know, he's not a very smart guy. You know, they really didn't think much of him, but he was, Lincoln was smart enough to realize, I don't know everything about everything. So I need to put people on my cabinet you know, who are willing to say, hey, this is what I want to do. No, Abe, you're wrong. You should do this. And so I think he's a classic example of somebody who was like, okay, I want the best people on. I don't necessarily just want the people in my party. And if you're in another party, that's okay. We'll find a way to work together. And that's what he wanted. He wanted people that would argue with him. He wanted people who would be like, no, I don't think that's the way we should do that. I mean, ultimately it's, person on the top. It's the boss, it's the president, it's whoever who's going to have to make the final decision. But wouldn't you want to have that decision be made based on the best data you could get from everywhere as opposed to it's all going to be down this road as opposed to, well, these people over here, yeah, we don't care about them. I want to have the best data. And that's why I want people that'll argue with me, that'll say, no, Terry, have you thought about this? Oh, no, maybe I haven't. You know, okay. I'm open to that. I, like I say, I don't have all the answers, but you need people around you. If you want to be smart, you need people to argue with you. A hundred percent. That's basically the scientific method applied to your personal life. Because I find many situations in my life in which people don't really consider things for a second time. They just get into a point in which things are given and they don't really reconsider their thought. And I think that the only thought that shouldn't be reconsidered is the thought of reconsidering the other thoughts. That's a good point. <laughs> Take smart, calculated chances and learn from your mistakes. Take responsibility for your errors and don't be afraid to apologize. That's kind of do it first, say sorry after. 
Yeah, it's 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 easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to, to ask for permission. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I applied this in my life in many different ways, and it works. When you just feel like someone is interesting and you would like to meet him, you just approach him and you say, "Hey, I found like your business is really interesting. I would like to know how you built it. It's successful. It's amazing. I would like to know more about how you've achieved this." That's the way of going. Or even in dating, you should be able to go to to someone who you find attractive or interesting or in whatever way you consider someone to be attractive to you. You go to him or to her and you say, hey, I find you attractive. Do you want to have a coffee one day? That's having enough confidence in yourself, being confident in your skin to be able to say, I mean, uh, let's be honest, we're all narcissistic. We love talking about ourselves and what we're doing and our jobs and things like that. And when somebody approaches us and says, hey, I'd like to have coffee with you, or hey, I want to I want to understand why you started that business or that podcast or wrote that book or whatever it ends up being, people are like, wow, somebody's taking an interest in my life. And I think more times than not, you'll find those people, if they have the time, would be willing, would be open to that. Sure, I'll talk to you. I'll have lunch with you. I'll have, I'll have dinner with you. It, it's really interesting. I uh, When I was a hospital administrator, the chairman of the board of the hospital was a man who had been Richard Nixon's attorney during Watergate. And, and I don't know how much you know about that, but there was a president uh, back in, I believe it was the 70s, who got into some trouble, had to resign from office. He's the only president who's resigned. And then he was charged with certain things. And this man was one of his lawyers. So he was a very influential person, had one of the most prominent law firms in Columbus, Ohio. You know, just a nice guy. And I remember I was friends with his daughter-in-law and we had worked on a project together. And I remember saying, yeah, I'm thinking about maybe being interested in politics. Well, you should talk to Jack. Well, I called Jack up. I was scared to death. I was, you know, a nobody little, you know, young man. And here was this, you know, important guy who, you know, had all these high positions. And I said, hey, would you mind if I talk to you about this? He said, no, why don't you come down to the office? We'll go up to, yeah, they had a private restaurant on one of the floors, you know, that only members could go to. And we'll have lunch. And I remember walking in with him and everybody in that restaurant was staring at me. I'm sure they were like, who is this guy? And why is he with Jack? I mean, I ended up not pursuing politics or anything like that, but it was just a, a thing that was like, here was this great guy who would like, and I'm a nobody. He could have said, no, Terry, get lost. I don't want, but no, sure. Not only will I talk to you, but I'll come, you know, come down to the office and we'll have lunch in my private dining room. So yeah, I think people are much more willing to help other people when they express an interest in their lives, you know, whether their job, their business, their book, whatever it ends up being. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I don't know if this is a bias, but it could certainly be. We are easily hijacked by appreciation from someone else into doing whatever they want. Hey, I find you to be quite an interesting person. Would you like being a guest in my show? And then you are like, yeah, cool. But if that person approached you in a monetary way, in, in the terms of, hey, you've got a bigger audience than me, I want you to be here... I feel like you'd be benefited by it and maybe you too, but I don't care about that. You'd be like, oh, fuck off. I don't want this transaction to be done. But when I posit it in a way of, hey, I found you interesting. I would love to know more about your story. That's acceptable. It's totally acceptable. And and I used to drive my wife crazy when we would go you know, to business dinners or to parties or something like that. And I would go around the room 
and I would talk to people and I would always start out by asking them, you know, things like, hey, what do you do when you're not working? And they would talk about that. Well, hey, tell me about your family. And they'd talk about that. Well, how long have you been with this company? Where were you before that? And they'd talk about that. Where'd you go to school? And they'd talk about that. And they would never ask me anything about me. You know, they would never ask me reciprocal questions. And I thought it was hilarious. And I never volunteered everything. So at the end of the night, you know, we'd be driving home and I'd tell my wife, well, Bob does this and, you know, he met his wife here and he went to this school and he did that. And, you know, Sally does this and she went to this school and she was like, well, and what did they ask you about you? I'm like, they didn't ask me anything. They don't know anything about me, you know, and it used to drive her crazy that I would do that, you know, that I would go around and just talk to people and ask them about themselves because we love talking about ourselves. And like I said, I never volunteered anything about myself. It was always a lot of fun for me and I, I got a big kick out of it. Yeah, there, there was a chapter in your book, if I don't remember wrong, about always listen more than you talk. Yeah. There's a reason God gave you two ears and one mouth. I would say that's due to redundancies and benefits in the evolutionary process, that if you yeah. get hit by a, a horn of a, an elephant, one ear, and you still have the other one, but it would be too expensive to build two mouths. <laughs> yeah, in a lot of ways, you're right. I mean, it would have... You know, can you imagine having two mouths, you know, like one here and one here, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. yeah. But, but you're right. I get the point. I, I don't have to just throw ra rational arguments to everything. Your point is right. We There's a lot of benefit in listening to other people. You can always learn from other people, no matter how inexperienced, younger, like you, you for example, you consider me to be an interesting person from which their arguments are interesting enough to just hear them. So if I am interesting, everyone is. And you're right. And But see, you figured that out. And that's what makes you interesting. I mean, you figured out that we all have a story. You know, we all have something that makes us unique that we could learn from. But so many people only care about themselves and they're not interested or they're afraid or they're not confident enough to go up to somebody like you did and be like, Hey, you know, can I have coffee with you? Or, hey, can I, you know, take it to lunch and talk about your business? Or, you know, hey, you wrote this book. Tell me about your book. You know, how did you come about doing that? And so, yeah, not a lot of people have figured that out. But you're right. I, I remember reading somewhere that 84% of Americans feel that they have a book inside them, either a memoir or a fiction book or something like that. But less than 1% ever write that book. How, how pathetic is that? How terrible is that, that we all feel we have this story inside of us that could be a book, but we never take the time to develop it and bring it out and put it on paper so that other people can share it. That's, that might appeal to other bias, not to just the fact that we should hear more and talk less, but to the fact that people generally are less willing to actually do the work that requires achieving your goals. You're more idealistic when you add to the queue of Netflix the thing you're going to watch and you add yeah. documentaries and intelligent stuff or interesting uh, facts about life that could add value to you, but you end up watching the same stupid comedy. This happens to everyone. And yeah. there's no any more queue in Netflix. Why? Because they realize that people are idealistic when planning in foresight. But... Yeah. In retrospect, you realize that that foresight is useless and that, well, almost useless. It sometimes is useful, but I get what you mean. Yeah, you're right. 
I had a last point noted here. It's love yourself, love the people in your life, but most importantly, love the people who don't deserve your love. They need it the most. How do you define love and, and why? What would you say that this quote is true? Because especially the part of love the people who don't deserve your love, they need it the most. The people who don't deserve it, they should get the most love. How is it that you, by not deserving the love, should get the most love? That's counterintuitive. Yeah, in a lot of ways it is. But I think that quote or that thought goes more to my faith than to anything. You know, I mean, how do you define love? I, I don't know if I have an answer to that. It's just, I guess you know it when you see it. I mean, how do you define beauty? You know, you may look at somebody and say, man, she's beautiful. I may look at her and say, eh, she's okay. You know, so I mean, it's kind of, and, and the same way with excellence. You know, how do you define excellence? You may look at something and say, man, that person is excellent. I may say, yeah, they're good, but I don't think they're excellent. So I think, you know, love, beauty, excellence, those are things that we have to define for ourselves. We have to say that this is what this is. There's an old quote that says, you know, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Oh, wow. You know, and for me, love is really the overarching thing or should be the overarching thing in all our lives. We should love what we do. We should love ourselves. We should love the people in our lives. Now, is that true all the time? No, absolutely not. That's definitely not the case. But I think that's the aspiration. That's the top of the mountain kind of thing where we all should get to. So I, I think the people who don't deserve our love probably need it the most. You know, Why are you acting this way? Why are you treating people this way? I mean, is it because you never had love? Is it because you never had people care about you? You didn't have the right direction in life? And if you didn't, is it too late? I don't think it is. I mean, we can't do anything about our past. Our past is the past. We can't do anything about it other than learn from it. But we can start right now and move forward in a different direction, in a better way, if we choose. Now, most, a lot of people don't. A lot of people say, hey, you know, I like being a jerk. But really, I mean... Aren't the strongest people not necessarily the toughest, but the ones that are willing to learn that show their inner strength with their love, their peace, their mindset, and things like that? So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's kind of where that quote came from. Yeah, I see a similarity here with the example you gave in our previous chat about when you were a hospital administrator and you had to decide whether someone got credit or not. It's funny, or it's a funny coincidence. Well, it, it might not be funny, but it's, it's a curious coincidence. The fact that people who are the less solvent are the ones who need the credit the most, but are the people who are going to get the credit the least. Yeah. You know, when you're confident, when you're secure in yourself and your abilities, you don't need to be the one that gets all the credit. You need to share that credit because people like to feel included, like they're part of the, you know, hey, we were successful and part of that is due to what I did and part of that is what what you did and you did and you well, no, did. I was referring to a different credit. I was referring to a loan, not to a credit of I'm the best person. Say that one more time for I me. I was referring to a loan, not to credit in terms of a price from other people. I totally agree with you in that regard. You know, it's funny. I, I think back, you know, about the love story. When I was a young man, you know, 13, 14 years old, a kid, really, I admired this basketball coach here in the United States from the University of California at Los Angeles. And he was a very successful coach. And I remember one day he was being interviewed and I literally had a piece of paper and, and a pencil and I was writing down things he was saying. 
and trying to apply those things to my life. The commentator asked him something about, you're a great coach. You, you've won all these championships, but what motivates you? What do you want your players to learn? What do you want your players to take away from you know their association with you and the team and the university? And he brought it around. He said, I don't care what you do in life. I don't care how successful you are. It should all come back to love. Love yourself. Love what you do for a living. You know, Love your life. Love the people in your life. And I was like, no, coach, come on, give me some good X's and O's, you know, and things like that. I mean, love, are you kidding me? No, that's, you know, men don't talk about love, but men should talk about love. Men should talk, you know, I mean, we think we're too macho that we can't talk about it. We should talk about it. I mean, everybody should be able to talk about it because it. I think it should be the overarching thing that guides all our life. If we do things out of love, for ourselves, for our job, for our fellow man. I mean, yeah, things are still going to be messed up, but maybe they'll be a whole lot better. I would define love as a willingness of a good going of someone around you. If I want you to prosper, that's love. If I want you to prosper, that's love. I don't know if I agree with that. Maybe not prosper in economical terms, but in any terms, to flourish as a person. What about the part of, I want to give without ever asking anything in return. I mean, is that love? I will help you out. If you are bankrupt, I will give you money. But so you, I see you flourish in a higher odds than if I didn't <laughs> without expecting the money back. Just because I want you, the ultimate standard is seeing you flourish, not me getting the money back. Interesting. I guess personally, I think that's kind of a superficial kind of scratch the surface part of love. I don't think it's... I think it goes deeper than that, which is why I don't think I can define it. I think I know it when I see it. I know it when I feel it. But to define it, you know, I, I remember uh, I'm, I'm Catholic. And, and part of when you get married, you go to sit with a priest and stuff like that. And you talk about different things, you know, that'll come up in a marriage. And I remember one time I was talking to this priest friend of mine and I said, you know, how do you know if a couple's good together? You don't know all the time, but he said, you know, I always ask them, you know, do you love that person? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I want to marry that person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how do you define that? And he said, the people that seem to be like, can't define it. He says, I, those are the people that seem to be successful at it because it's so deep. I mean, it's so much in your soul. It's like, uh, it's there, but I, I just can't grasp it. I know what it is, but I can't define it. And where so many people are like, oh, love is this or love is that. I'm like, ooh, I, I, you're, you're kind of constraining love that I think is just that I'm not sure it can be constrained. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I get your point. I think you're actually right. Yeah. Maybe my definition is too narrow or yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I get your point. Let's talk about your hostage negotiation part. How was it? Can you give some anecdotes over that? Sure. It was a lot of fun. It was hairy in a lot of ways. The, the thing about negotiating is that, you know, a couple of things. One of the things that was kind of the overarching part of negotiating was trust. You, there had, you were developing a trust with this person, just like, you know, a husband and wife or a parent or a child or your boss or support. You know, you have to develop a relationship. So that's what you were doing but you were doing it in a very short period of time over the course of maybe hours. And so we never lied to people we negotiated with. People would say to us, 
hey, I'll come out, I'll put the gun down, I'll let the hostage go, whatever it is, but you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say to him, well, when you come out, you are going to go to jail. And then we would try to deflect the conversation to something that was more positive for them. You know, we couldn't lie and, and use that to our advantage, but we did it because there was a good chance that a year from now or two years from now or five years from now, we would be right back here negotiating with that same person again. And if they felt that you lied to them before, then you were going to have to bring another negotiator in because you had no credibility. You know, I mean, it'd be like, absolutely not. Alex, I don't trust you. So I can't, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Get out of here kind of thing. So that was one reason. The other thing we did was we used silence to our advantage. And I guess the way I think about this is, you know, we've all been to the park when we were kids and been on a teeter-totter, you know, a seesaw and that kind of thing. And when we started negotiating, the, the bad guy's emotional side, emotional brain was way up in the air and their rational brain was down on the ground. So over time, we would just ask them open-ended questions, things like, why are we here today? What, what's going on? And, and we would get them to talk and burn off a lot of that emotional energy to where the teeter-totter would hopefully come to equilibrium. And then over time would eventually kind of be, their rational end would be up in the air and their emotional end would be on the ground. And you're going to make better decisions for yourself when you're thinking with your rational brain than you are with your emotional brain most of the time. And so when your emotional brain's up in there, I'm not going to talk to you about putting the gun down or coming out or letting the hostage go. It's not until the rational brain is up in the air that we can start talking about solutions to this problem. So one of the things we used when we asked those open-ended questions, and I think we used it effectively, was silence. We would ask an open-ended question, person would talk for a while, and then they would stop talking. And then we would just sit there in that silence. And for most people, that silence is uncomfortable. And so we would, you know, it's like, yeah, I want to talk, but don't just sit here. And then the other person start talking again. The bad guys start talking again. So, and again, that's what you want. You want them talking. You want to burn off that energy. So silence was another thing we used very effectively. Trust was something when I talked about. We talked about the, you know, um, listening to understand versus listening to respond. And I guess I'll give you a couple of stories if you want, you okay. know, a couple yeah. negotiations. One is kind of funny. The, the other one's a little sad, but kind of interesting. The funny one first. So like I said, we don't start talking to people about coming out for a long time. Could be a couple hours, you know, before that teeter-totter is at a equal, you know. And so I was working this particular night in a marked car in a uniform and I got to the scene pretty quickly and I was talking to the officers on scene. I'm like, what's the deal? It's like, he's drunk. He's barricaded himself in the house with a gun and his wife and he won't come out. I'm like, okay, do you have him on the phone? Yeah, I have him on the phone. So let me talk to him. So we're talking, we talked for about 10, 15 minutes. And I just had a feeling, I had a gut feeling. And I, and I said to him, what would it take for you to come out? And he's like, give me a beer. I said, if I gave you a beer, do I have your word you would come out? He said, do I have your word I could drink it? I said, you have my word you could drink it. Do I have your word that you will let your wife go and come out? He's like, yeah. So I gave $5 to one of the officers. I said, go down to the store, buy a beer. The tactical team put the beer on the front porch. And I called them back. And I said, your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out. You put the gun down and you come out with your hands up. All of a sudden, the front door flies open. Here comes his wife. Here he comes with his hands up. 
we handcuff him, let him drink the beer, and off to jail he went. So it, it was a very unorthodox negotiation. So that, that's the first story. The second story is a little bit sadder, but still has somewhat of a happy ending. This individual, it's probably eight o'clock at night. He wants to kill himself. He's decided he's going to commit suicide. So he slits his wrist. Well, that doesn't work for him. He doesn't do it the right way. And then for some reason, he makes the decision that he thinks it's a good idea to turn the gas on in his oven and stick his head into the oven. I didn't quite get that, but you know, he thinks that's going to work. Well, that didn't work either. Well, now he's got a gun and he calls one of his family members and his family members call the police and we get there and I'm negotiating with him. It's probably four o'clock in the morning now. And so, you know, he's like, oh, I'm really tired. I want to come out. I'm like, good. I said, just put the gun down. Come on out. When you come out, I'll come down to the scene and we'll talk face to face. And he's like, I'd really like that. I said, but don't hang up the phone. Just put the gun down, go outside and do what the officers tell you to do. And then I'll come down. Okay. Well, he hangs up the phone, which isn't uncommon because we're, we're conditioned to when a call is over to hang up the phone. So I didn't think much of it. But about 15 seconds later, one of the tactical officers comes on the radio and says, we heard a gunshot. And I'm like, oh my God, he didn't. He shot himself. He did. He shot himself, shot himself in the head. But he shot himself at such an angle that the bullet went underneath his scalp, like right here on his temple, went around his scalp and came out the other side. Never penetrated his skull, never got to his brain. So here's a guy who three times tried to kill himself and ended up not doing it. I think that was God's way of saying, uh-uh. I don't want you up here right now. So you know what? You're you're not going to die tonight. So that was, uh, you know, those are two examples of some of the things that we did. And, you know, 90% of the time we were successful at getting the person out. But 10% of the time, the people ended up making the choice to kill themselves. And I never lost sleep over that. And I don't want you to think I'm kind of a callous or a cruel person by that. But the way I look at it was, You're asking me to come into a situation that very well may have been festering for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and solve that problem in, you know, two hours, four hours, five hours. I I did the best I could with the best people and the best training, but it was ultimately your decision how this ended tonight. It's amazing how those critical moments that have been built through bad habits, addictions, many mental problems through years or decades. And then the critical moment in which everything switches and someone decides to commit uh, a killing or either suicide and you are there and you try to solve it. But I guess that once you, that once that guy has been shown to be able to take that step, you note his name in a, in a place to leave trait that that person is mentally ill enough to be considered as a threat to society. Don't you? We certainly take them to the hospital. You know, I mean, a lot of times it's they go to the hospital before they go to jail and, and they get evaluated by a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You know, do they need to stay in the hospital? Do they need medication and things like that? But, you know, with a lot of mental illness, people, you know, they take medication and then they start to feel better. And then they somehow the logic is, well, if I'm feeling better, then I don't need the medication anymore. And then they revert back to the situation they were in. And then they do something stupid, like get a gun or take a hostage or, you know, say they're going to kill themselves. And we're right back in that situation instead of saying, well, this medicine made me feel better and I'm a productive member of society. 
I'm going to keep taking this medicine so that I can continue to feel that way. Somehow that doesn't, that doesn't click. It's always, I feel better. So I'm going to stop the medicine. And then they end up reverting back to having the same problems they did when they encountered us. You know, I mean, think about it. If you're talking to me and your house is surrounded by the police, you're probably having one of the worst days, if not the worst day of your life. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to find myself in that situation. Definitely. No. Cool. Terry, where can people find more about you? Uh, I have a website called Motivational Check. I put up a thought for the day. My, my social media links are there. I've got recommendations for books and videos. You can leave me a message. So motivationalcheck.com will get you to me. Cool. I will leave the link of Amazon to your book and to your webpage too. It's Sustainable Excellence. Wherever. That way. <laughs> yeah, Sustainable Excellence. The 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Recommended read. Thank you. Perfect, Terry. It's been great. I appreciate having you. It's been fun, Alex. I enjoy talking with you. Perfect. See you. All right. Take care.